Our lesson this morning comes from Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. If you would stand with me this morning as we read Holy Scripture together. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word through his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and good news is preached to the poor, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to address the crowds concerning John. What is it that you came out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you come out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? What then did you come out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Or among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we move into week three of Advent, the week that we light the candle of joy, we also continue to reflect on John the Baptist, who is a central figure during the season of Advent. And he's a central figure, one, because he is a herald of the coming Christ. He is the harbinger. He is the forerunner. He is the one that declares the coming of the Lord, that says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He is all of those things, but also... Because his life exemplifies what is sometimes called the already but not yet nature of the coming of Jesus. The already but not yet nature of the coming of Jesus. And that's what we're going to consider today. It's quite possible in our text that John was a bit confused. Because this very kind of strange thing was happening to him. Namely, that the Son of God had appeared. He had incarnated, as we say. He had come in the form of Jesus Christ, and, and, and literally just weeks or months before John found himself sitting in prison, right? He's announcing, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And he's baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River, and like they all hear this booming voice from heaven that says, behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So all of these things have have taken place, and now John is sitting in jail? Right? Right? The Christ has come, the the Savior of the world, the, the Son of David, the King of all things has come. He's here, and I'm here? Like, what is happening right now? 
John had seen some incredible things, the kind of things that don't happen every day, and that would very likely lead one to think, okay, right, he's here now, let the renewal of society begin. After all, that's what most people expected. They were anticipating a Messiah that would return Israel to its cultural peak. Back during the time of David and the time of Solomon, where there was great wealth and there was military might, right? And, and God truly seemed to be smiling on the nation of Israel and blessing the nation of Israel and saying things about their king like, this is a man after my own heart. And there was relative peace as well. Surely this is what the son of David is coming to do. Surely he will correct the wrongs that we are experiencing. But instead, John is arrested by Herod Antipas, who is the king. He's kind of a puppet king under the Roman government at this point in time. When John was arrested, surely it was because he was saying that Jesus was, in fact, the real king of the Jews. But no, it wasn't for that reason. John was actually arrested because he had publicly criticized Herod for divorcing his own wife and taking his brother's wife as his own. So John finds himself sitting in jail, hearing about these things that Jesus is doing, but also kind of going, wait a second, right? If he is the Son of God, then why am I sitting here? It's a reasonable question, right? It's a reasonable thing to ask. I mean, John was just a man. We learned in today's text, as Jesus said, that he was a prophet, but prophets aren't omniscient, right? John the Baptist isn't God. He's not all-knowing. When he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he said that as a prophet, like somebody, God had given him that word to declare to the people. But he's also not omniscient. Maybe you've asked a similar kind of question before. Like, if Jesus is really God, then why are all these broken things happening, right? If Jesus is really the one, if he has really come, then what is going on? Several years ago, as many of you know, we had a sweet little two-year-old niece who died in her sleep. It was inexplicable. And to this day, there's no explanation for why this happened. Autopsy revealed nothing, no medical evidence, no clue. She laid down and didn't wake up. Why, why in the world do those kinds of things happen if the kingdom of heaven has come near? Maybe you found yourself in a situation where you feel like, man, I've done I've done what I felt like God was calling me to do, right? I've, I've, I've been obedient. I've been prayerful. I've been spending time in the Word. Like, I've been doing all the things. So, so why, why, do things, why do things seem so hard, right? Why, why aren't things just kind of falling into place? I've been coaching someone recently who's not a part of our church, um, but who's been in ministry for most of his adult life, and he's recently kind of launched out into a new ministry venture, and it's, it's new terrain. He feels like, man, I'm doing what God's called me to do. I'm being obedient, but it has been extremely challenging. And, and he's found himself going, well, wait a second. Wait, I feel like I'm doing what the Lord has called me to do, but I, but I keep hitting all of these roadblocks. We sometimes think, if I'm doing what God has called me to do, or if I am being obedient to him, then all of the doors are going to be opened. 
right? The money's just going to show up. Like everything's going to fall into place and there aren't going to be any issues or challenges. If I'm doing what God has called me to do, there's always going to be success. Things are going to go my way. And, and yet, let me ask you, what do you think that John the Baptist would have said about that kind of theology as he was sitting in jail? You see, for many years in America, we've heard from popular American preachers that if you are obedient, blessings will come. And oftentimes we're not talking about like eternal heavenly blessings. We're talking about material blessings. We're talking about success and life and work and money and things and stuff. And, and it, it, it is kind of a window into our heart, isn't it? Into what we really long for. Into what we really want. So John sends word to Jesus. Are you really the Christ? Are you the one that we've been looking for? Or should we look for another? And notice how Jesus responds. I hope this sounded a little bit familiar to you based on our earlier Old Testament reading from Isaiah. What did Jesus say? Jesus said six things. He said, you go and tell John this. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed, right? The deaf hear the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Do you, do you remember what we read in Isaiah this morning? It was a prophecy concerning the Messiah that said those very things, right? So when Jesus says this, it, it's not just simply, here's what's going on, John, or here's what I'm working on right now. Jesus is also saying, notice how I'm fulfilling prophecy here. Notice how I'm completing the words of the prophet Isaiah. Have you ever worked a job where you had to do like a self-evaluation, right? I've been in these situations where, where I have to sit down and I have to do my own evaluation. How, did I accomplish my goals? Did I do a good job? Do I think I'm worthy of maybe a raise or something like that? And, and then my supervisor also would sit down and do an evaluation of me as well. And then there's like this meeting where you have to sit down and compare notes, Right? And you think, man, I thought I did a really great job on this, and your supervisor maybe has a different opinion. So, so Jesus here is saying, not only, he's not only saying, this is like my performance report, right? This is my self-evaluation of what I'm doing. Jesus is saying, here's the proof of who I am. Not just what I'm accomplishing, here's who I am. I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one that has been foretold. And what does he say after that? He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, who in the world would be offended by this, right? Are you offended by people who serve the homeless? Or are you, are you bothered by people who like work with the blind? Like, are you offended by those people? Certainly not, or hopefully not. So, so why in the world would anybody be offended by Jesus? Well, well, notice the groups of people who are receiving restoration at the hands of Christ. Notice these groups. These are, these are the most marginalized people that there can be. I mean, I mean, the dead is one of those categories, right? There's not more of a fringe group than the dead, right? And yet, Jesus is raising them up. This isn't the mainstream. 
It certainly isn't the rich. It's not the religious elite. Even guys like John the Baptist are sitting in jail while lepers are being cleansed and the blind are receiving their sight and the poor are hearing good news. You sure, Jesus? Like, are you, you really... You really the one? Remember what John's message was, what his primary gospel message was. It was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Doesn't blessing come to those who have repented and judgment come to those who haven't? In a somewhat ironic twist, while Jesus is out doing all of these things, including raising the dead, John will be put to death. But recognize this. What looks like the restoration of society for one group can also look like the destruction of society for another group. What looks like the restoration of society for one group can look like the destruction of society for another group. Certainly, the lepers were overjoyed at being cleansed by the hands of Jesus, and yet the religious leaders were greatly offended that Jesus would dare to touch an unclean person. To them, this was the unraveling of traditional values. What, what did he do? Can, like Their minds were blown. They couldn't believe the audacity and the blasphemy and the complete disregard for the law that Jesus seemed to have. But isn't it possible that Jesus wasn't all that concerned and isn't all that concerned with helping the comfortable remain comfortable? Could it be that Jesus isn't all that concerned with helping the powerful stay powerful? Could it be that Jesus is actually far more concerned with his own will and seeing his own will accomplished than he is with maintaining some kind of status quo. Could those things be true? Jesus then turns and addresses the crowd that has gathered, and he speaks to them about John, and he asks this same question three times. He says, what did you come out into the wilderness to see? Remember, John is way out. He's in the desolate places as we talked about last week. He's not preaching in Jerusalem. He's not preaching in Bethlehem. John's, man, he's out there. And yet people were traveling great distances to go out and hear him. So Jesus says to them, why in the world have you come out here? Like, what are you expecting to find? What are you hoping to see? He says, were you hoping to find a reed shaken by the wind? Meaning, were you coming all the way out here expecting to find like a timid or a tentative or kind of a wimpy preacher? Is that what you were expecting to come across? If you're like surprised that he spoke out against Herod and, and like Herod's just like completely debased, defiled marriage situation, were you expecting him not to make controversial statements? Do you think he's just some, some like reed shaken by the wind out here in the wilderness? Is that what you came to see? Certainly not. So, so what did you come out here to see? Did you come out to see a rich man? Like somebody wearing soft clothing? No, no, no. This guy's out here in like camel hair. It's the opposite. You can go to the temple and see rich guys, right? 
You, you can go to the temple and find guys wearing soft clothing who are basically living in palaces. Why did you come all the way out here? He asks a third time and he says, were you hoping to find a prophet? Were you hoping to find like words of life? Were you hoping to find somebody who has like the answers? Well, if, if that's what you came out here for, then Jesus says, then I tell you, you've found it. You've found it. And not only a prophet, he says later, he's like the new Elijah. He's the one that was talked about in the books of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Malachi. He's the one who's crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And here's the thing, he's been doing it since he was in the womb. You remember the story when John the Baptist was in utero and Jesus also, Mary's pregnant with him, she goes to visit Elizabeth and John leaps in her womb. From the very beginning, he's been pointing to the Christ, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So you want words of life? You've found them. You want hope? You've found it. You want someone who has the answers? You've found it. But it's not John who will save you, right? John's just a prophet. It's not what prophets do. John's just pointing the way. And by the way, those who are in power often hate prophets. Those who love their sin hate prophets. Prophets are really great at getting killed. That's one of the things they do best because they won't shut up, right? They're going to tell the truth, right? They're going to say the things that other people are scared to say. They're going to call things out. Prophets aren't celebrated. Prophets don't get parades. Prophets get beheaded. And that's exactly what happened to John. He got beheaded and his head was brought to Herod on a platter. What a way to go, man. Jesus makes this sort of enigmatic statement in verse 11. At the very end, after praising John, he says, he says this. This is interesting. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's he saying there? He's not implying that John is not to be in the kingdom of heaven or that John isn't currently in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is this. John is like one of the greatest human beings to ever live. Like what he has been called to by God, what he has been obedient to um, is just kind of mind-boggling to most of us. This is one of the greatest human beings to ever walk the earth. But even the greatest human beings to ever live cannot stand before a holy God and pass the test based on their own merits. John has done everything that has been asked of him. And he is now going to his death in obedience to God. But even still, he cannot stand before a holy God and pass the test based on his own merits. So who enters the kingdom of heaven? How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? It's those who pass through the doorway of Christ, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
You don't come to the Father through your good works. You don't come to the Father through your obedience to the Father. Isn't that amazing? John doesn't come to the kingdom of heaven through his obedience to God. John comes to the kingdom of heaven. You come to the kingdom of heaven through the doorway of Christ. It is through Christ crucified and risen. It is through the body and blood of Christ that we could ever stand before a holy God and be called righteous. It's not because we are righteous. It's because we enter through the doorway of Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness is given to us as a free gift. It's laid on top of us. There is a very real sense in which even if you haven't given blind, uh, the, uh, sight to the blind, or if, even if you haven't helped the lame walk or preached good news to the poor, if Jesus Christ is your hope, if you are coming through the doorway of faith and, and the righteousness of Christ is being given to you, there is a very real sense in which God looks at you and sees Christ and the work of Christ and not you and your sin and your brokenness. He has done what you cannot do. He's gone where you cannot go. And it is also that you can go where you cannot go. He is the way and the truth and the life. It's his merits and not ours. So Jesus' first advent initiates this coming kingdom. It is here, but it's also kind of not here, right? It, it's, it's here, and we now have access to it. But it is still yet to come as well. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9 says this, At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So everything is not yet in subjection to him, but we see him, right? That wasn't true before. We now see Christ who for a little while was incarnate, who was made lower than the angels. We see the doorway through which we enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 3.2 says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, for we shall see him in his fullness. So, almost, but not yet, right? So there is this sense in which we enter the kingdom of God now through Christ, but yet we don't fully experience the kingdom of God now. This is why Paul uses the language of ambassadorship in the New Testament. We've talked a lot about ambassadorship. This is such a great metaphor for what we are currently experiencing as believers, for what we're currently experiencing as a church. Um, we have this kingdom that we belong to. Listen, don't miss this. We have this kingdom that we belong to, but we don't currently live there. We live here. We live in a foreign land, but we don't belong to the foreign land. We are citizens of another place if you are a follower of Christ. But here's the temptation for followers of Jesus who live in the foreign land. The temptation is assimilation. Some of you guys remember our friends Haley and Joey Travers. Um, 
Joey was our first worship leader here. We love them. We miss them. They're in the military, so they had to move on, unfortunately. But when we first met them, when Lindsay and I first met them years and years ago, they just moved to Shreveport, and they just moved here from the Boston area. And they both had this wicked Boston accent, right? I don't do it enough justice, but it was like thick and heavy. But then they lived here for like three or four or five years. And you know what happened slowly over time? Unconsciously, they began to lose that accent to the point where they would go home and people thought they sounded funny, right? The same thing happens to us, doesn't it? Living in this world. When we belong to another world, Haley and Joey made no intentional effort to lose their accent, but they surrounded themselves with people who spoke differently, right? They filled their heads with the sounds of voices that didn't sound like theirs. And slowly, over time, unconsciously, without them knowing, things began to change. They began to assimilate And guys, this is our challenge. You see, you weren't born in the kingdom of God. You were born into this world. You were born into a world of brokenness and sin. And so most of us are deeply assimilated into this worldly culture, right? We're deeply assimilated into worldly culture. We are primarily accustomed to the values, not of the kingdom of God, but the values of this world. That is like our default, That is what we go to. That's why we go to anger instead of forgiveness as our first stop, right? That's why we go to retribution instead of grace as our first stop, because we are more accustomed to the things of this world than the values of the kingdom of God. We are more accustomed to worshiping the idols of this world than we are used to worshiping the king of the universe. But in turning to Christ... Like when we give Jesus our allegiance and our obedience and turning to Christ, it's almost like saying, I'm renouncing my citizenship in this world and I am becoming a citizen of another country, but I'm not moving there. I'm still going to live here. So, So just imagine for a moment if I decided I'm renouncing my American citizenship and I'm becoming a citizen of France, but I'm not moving to France right? But, but I'm still going to live here, and I'm going to start wearing a beret and, you know, riding a little bicycle with a baguette in it. All of these terrible French stereotypes, right? I'm going to start speaking French, even though no one around me understands or speaks French, right? I, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. And what I'm doing doesn't make any sense to the vast majority of people. Why in the world would somebody who was born here, who has lived up to this point, by by the traditions and standards and values of this country and this culture, why would he renounce his citizenship in this place, which we think of as a great place, and become a citizen of another place and adopt all of the characteristics of that place but not move to that place, but yet remain here and try to convince everybody else to become French? That sounds just crazy, doesn't it? And yet that's what this is. So our task is not simply to further assimilate into the place where we live. It's actually to dissimilate. It's actually to divest 
from the culture that we were born into, from the world that we live in. It's actually to separate ourselves and be a people who are holy. Remember that scripture that's all throughout the Bible that says, be holy for God is holy? Do you know what the word holy means? It means set apart. Be holy because he's holy. It is about dissimilating from the culture that we are so like inoculated to and so ingrained in, removing ourselves from it and turning to him. Another word that we could use to describe this is the word repentance. That's what repentance is. I am revoking I am renouncing my citizenship in this, and I'm giving my full allegiance to this. I'm repenting, and I'm placing my faith in this. You guys following me? I'm putting off the old. I'm taking on the new. I'm actively separating myself from this culture and taking on the culture of the kingdom. As Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I love how Eugene Peterson translate that same, translates that same passage in the message. Here's what he says. This is Romans 12. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity within you. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. That's exactly what happened to Haley and Joey, right? They got comfortable with us. We were speaking a little bit differently. And without even thinking, voila, here's what happens. Isn't that most of us? It's insidious. The only way that we dissimilate is by surrounding ourselves with people who are also dissimilating by filling our ears with the gospel, by being reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus, the body and blood of Christ, and by actively seeking to transform what is going into our minds. I'm going to leave you this morning with a quote that I heard recently from John Mark Comer, who is a pastor in Portland. In speaking to this very topic, he pointed to some recent research that suggests that the last thing that you see every day and the first thing you see every morning has greater impact on shaping who you are and how you think and your identity than something you might see in the middle of the day, say at 3 p.m. The last thing you see at night, the first thing you see in the morning has tremendous impact on your overall mental state, 
mental health. And here's what he said that struck me. He said, so if that is true, what do you think we're doing to ourselves when the last thing that we see at night is softcore porn on HBO or Netflix, and the first thing that we see in the morning are a bunch of people whose lives look way better than our own as we scroll through social media. Why in the world should we be surprised that, that all of these things that the kingdom promises us, peace, joy, love, generosity, all those things that Katie and Shane mentioned earlier, that those seem absent from our lives when the things that we are ingesting could not be further removed from the values of the kingdom and the truth of the gospel. As people who are living in the in-between, my challenge to us today is that we would actively, intentionally take on the citizenship, the culture, and the faith of the kingdom. That we would divest from the things of this world. That we would separate ourselves from them, not as legalists, right? Not as moralists. Not as people who think that by doing those things, we're somehow going to earn our way into heaven, but as people who so desire and long for the things of God that we couldn't even imagine filling our minds and our hearts with other things when the riches of the kingdom are available to us now. Let us heed Jesus' words this morning and receive his kingdom in faith like little children. Let's pray. God, you are good. And Father, this message today is timely for me and hopefully for all of us as we seek to live lives as Christ followers in this broken world. Father, help us to remember the fact that as your children, we are citizens of another place, that we are ambassadors of that place here. So as a result, other people who are not a part of the kingdom of God should, in theory, be able to look to us and see the values of your kingdom. People should be able to look to us and, and get a glimpse, even though it is imperfect, get a glimpse of what all of this Jesus stuff is about. And Father, my prayer is that we would live lives that declare to the watching world that, that following Jesus isn't just about like going to a Sunday morning event it's not just about espousing some things, Father, but that it, it truly is about a life changed by a good and holy God who gave His life for us. Father, may our hearts be broken by the sacrifice of Christ, for the fact that that, that even had to happen in the first place. May we be moved by your Spirit to give everything over to you, even the things of this world that we're holding on to because secretly, behind the scenes, underneath the surface, even though we wouldn't admit it, we hope that they would really save us and not you.
Father, speak to us through the power of your Spirit this morning as we come to your table. It's in your name we pray. Amen.